What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks so much for being here. I know some of you are coming over from the Rich Roll Podcast, which we recently uh, sponsored to try to kind of build up awareness. So thank you for joining us. Feel free to reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com to let us know what you think. Everyone else who's been following us for years and years, or maybe you're new as well, also thank you. All right, enough of that. Let's get into it. We don't like making these intros long. This week, incredible episode for you. We're really trying to uncover some things in this. We're talking with, we're talking with Dr. Shelley. And I leave off the last name because I really can't pronounce it. So I'm going to butcher it. It's probably Resiniello? Resinello? Not sure. It's Dr. Shelley. She is the author of the new book, The Conscious Leader. And I love this because here's kind of what this book is talking about. At work specifically, I mean really in all aspects of life, but at work when you're in this team environment and you have different levels of control and leadership, there's this whole thing going on underneath the surface, right? There's what we show others and then who we really are and who we are at home or who we are at work or on a date. You know, there's things that that are going on that might influence others. And at work, it's very important, especially if you are a leader to understand what's going on down there and to be as self-aware as possible because it can have both positive and negative implications on those that you need to lead. So, you know, the subtitle of the book is Nine Principles and Practices to Create a Wide Awake and Productive Workplace. We really use the workplace as just a, a playing ground in this episode. We're talking about things like what's the difference between being mindful and being conscious? You know, what is it to be conscious? What is it to understand yourself at a deeper level? How do you do that? And what are your blocks? We talk a little bit about the Jahari window, which I'd heard of before, but really talking about it, refreshing it just makes a lot of sense. So that's all I'm going to do in regards to this. As I mentioned, Dr. Shelley is an author and she recently wrote The Conscious Leader, but she's also a psychologist. She's trained in psychoanalytics, graduating with honors from Douglas College in New Jersey. She has a clinical social psychology doctorate from the graduate faculty of the New School for Social Research, and she is the recipient of the New School Alumni Fellowship. 
Again, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com and on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy. Here it is, Dr. Shelley. All right. Well, Dr. Shelley, thank you so much for being on the show. Excited to talk to you and learn more about all the knowledge you have amassed over your career. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. The first thing, I kind of mentioned it to you right before we hit record, but I'm trying something new here. And so you'll be the guinea pig. But I wanted to kick (laughs) things off by just saying, you know what, Dr. Shelley, tell us a story. Tell you a story. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, we live in a world of, of stories, most of them not very good lately. <laughs> and I think it's important that we uh, think about the good things. Now, I am going to tell you a story that may not sound very good in what happened and what I witnessed happening, but it certainly gave me pause for thought. And I have passed the story on to lots of folks since then. And in fact, I tell a version of it in my book. And it's that once, a couple of summers ago, I was lucky enough to be in this magical place in France called Crayon Le Brave, which is a a hotel that, it's it's one of those Provencal groups of buildings that kind of cascades down a hill. And it it overlooks uh, the beautiful Mont Ventoux. It's just paradise. It's a garden. It has smells and sounds. And you get to lounge on these wonderful chairs hidden in little nooks and crannies. And then suddenly someone will appear and say, do you want something? And for me, the answer is always a a wonderful cup of tea, Hmm. which they did very well there. And I was sipping on my herbal tea and calm and looking at everything. And there's this lovely swimming pool as well. And I was doing my best to be my uh, Italian, do far niente, do nothing and enjoy life. And all <laughs> of a sudden, as though somebody shot them out of a cannon, this father and son came barreling into our area. And we heard them before we saw them. So it's kind of like that scene in King Kong where you hear all this rattling and rolling. And and the father screamed, you know, something like the last one into the pool is a loser or something. And <laughs> and the kid jumped in and then they started talking very loudly. And of course, I'm mortified because they were Americans and <laughs> they were really living up to that image. And everybody was absolutely horrified. We were in this very, very special place and the spell had been broken. And the father kept, got out of the pool and was sitting on his, uh, with his cell phone and clicking and moving. And, and um, he decided to record a new message <laughs> and telling people very loudly that he was in the South of France and, It was just incredible. And the son kept trying to talk to him and he really just ignored him. And he finally said, you know, something like, hey, look at that mountain. How about we tackle that on the bikes tomorrow? And the kid was just trying to engage him in conversation, but he didn't get it. Neither did he get that he was disturbing all of the rest of us. And sadly, most of all, he didn't understand that he was in a very special sacred garden. And the image for me stays with me because I think it's what we're all probably doing every day. We forget we're in a very, very special place. And so much of living with great speed is taking us out of this space. And it's making us forget how to be kind to one another, considerate. It stops us from listening. It stops us from connecting to the people we care about. And we do so much damage. We talk a lot about the environment, but the social, psychological environment is suffering even more. Wow. So that's my story. I was not expecting it. I love it. It was because stories with a moral, obviously, uh, are are just they stick with you and they're great to hear and that helps let's just jump right in because that hit home for me i I think we'll talk about mindfulness a little bit but upon starting this podcast i like to think often i talk to people about mindfulness and all that and as many of the listeners know i recently had a son and he really brought to light how noisy my world is Mm. because 
I am not a person that takes time for granted. However, I do struggle with pausing. So with him, I will force myself to pause and, and be with him. And what upsets me is the, my inability to focus on him without thinking about all the work things I have to do. Even yeah. when I try, I sit and go, this is a one moment in my life. So how do we do that? How do we quiet our brain that has become so accustomed to achievement and accomplishment? Oh, that is the quandary of our new century, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think that we're all just kind of going along with the speed of velocity, but where are we going indeed? And I, I think the mindfulness movement, if we want to call it that, because it's, it's funny, you know, when we discover something in the West, it's new, but it's been around for such a very long time and, um, and in many cultures and called many things, but being in the here and now is essential to our really milking this wonderful experience that we call life. And, you know, we see a lot today about people uh, meditating and working um, to keep themselves connected to things like the sweet moments of life with their children, just uh, be able to really be in a sunset when it's happening, all of the above. And people still struggle with it. You know, I see people walking around with the app to try to stay mindful. And hmm. um, what I hear is, yes, they can do it for a little while, but then the meditation ends and they're back into the craziness. Um, some of the have residue, which is good. But I take it a step back even further. It's my belief that we can't do it by mindfulness alone, the practice of mindfulness and meditation, we have to add the practice of consciousness. And it's something that I did not create. If you read, first and foremost, any of the old Hindu or Buddhist texts, they will always tell you that mindfulness has to be accompanied by consciousness. You cannot get to nirvana or enlightenment without the two working together. And we in the West, again, we adopt things and we don't look thoroughly at what we're taking on. So I would say that it's not enough to espouse mindfulness. You have to do the work to be conscious of yourself and your unconscious mind. When you begin to pull all of those pieces together, then you have a better chance of being successful. Does that make sense? Well, it does. But I want to go into it further. It makes sense to me because obviously I've read the majority of the book, haven't made through the whole thing because I just opened it the other day, but I've also looked into you know your work and so I've started to understand this a little more. And there's a quote that jumped out to me that you've been cited as saying a few times actually, which is, we cannot become mindful if we are not first conscious, which is kind of what you're talking about here. Yes. So explain to us, because I think we hear, we do hear about mindfulness a lot. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've interviewed people about mindfulness, but I've never interviewed anybody about consciousness. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, also my view of consciousness comes from the very Western tradition, uh, the psychoanalytic tradition, the idea that we walk around with the tip of the iceberg available to us. The conscious mind is very small. It's what we like to think of as our rational selves. But what we know about ourselves, essentially, is that we're not rational. And that every day we have illogical, unconscious stuff that's walking around with us with hidden agendas and secret motivations. It sounds rather like a spy movie. And in point of fact, over the years, I, I think of myself as a psychological detective because I urge people to find out what their unconscious mind is holding and to make it conscious because then they have access to this great power of consciousness and awareness, which are the critical components that mindfulness requires. It's like this. 
we carry the, these thoughts inside of us that are thoughts that are not thought. They're down there and we push them down. All of the things from our childhood, all of our early life experiences, all of the things that happened to us along the way, all of the things that are unresolved, confusing, painful, all of our desires and fears and anxieties, the things that are problematic for us, like prejudices and biases that we carry. And the fallout from those really, really difficult emotions, anger and guilt and grief and shame, we hold that down. And these emotions and thoughts and feelings have a way of popping up when they needn't, <laughs> they pop up at the most inopportune moments and they affect us and they create chaos in our lives and the lives of the people that we're interacting with, family, friends, workplace. So in order to prevent that kind of collision, we need to understand ourselves in a very deep and profound way so that we can take what is unconscious in us and make it conscious. When we make it conscious, we bring it into the light of day, and then we are in control of it. It does not control us. And then we have more to work with when we think about becoming mindful. There's like so many things there. And the, the first one at the end, you mentioned when we bring it to our conscious, we are in control of it as opposed to it being in control of us. And I really like that because my assumption is that when it's unconscious, we act without knowing, but when it's conscious, we then have the choice to kind of see it and decide if we want to go down that path or not. Is that kind of what so you're saying? Brilliantly said. Okay. Exactly right. Okay. And so two questions there. The first being, why then have we evolved to hold so much in our subconscious? And then the obvious follow-up is with that being the case, how how do we deal with it? Let's go into kind of learning because I'm now I'm really interested. How do I bring up my subconscious and how do I bring it to the forefront? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we we keep it down there because we feel that these things are dangerous or embarrassing or shameful will somehow hurt us if they come into the light of day. And that's why we have defense mechanisms because they work to keep this stuff down and hidden. In a, and of course, then hidden from ourselves. The problem, as I said earlier, is that this stuff doesn't stay down very well. Defense mechanisms work until they don't. Mm. You know, we all live, we couldn't live without defense mechanisms. We couldn't live without some denial. Otherwise we'd be afraid to get out of our beds in the morning. But when we have too much denial, we won't see the way that we're treating our child or that we're drinking too much or any number of things that we don't want to own, right? So that's human nature. That's how we're made. That's what we do. And if we get this stuff to come up, we get it in a place, as I said earlier, where we can be in control of it. And then, as you say, then you can decide what you want to do. So a good way to think about it is, if you're unconscious, you're stuck basically in things that have happened in the past, distant past, recent past, and all you can do then is be basically a victim of your own feelings and you react, you react. But if you allow these things to come into consciousness and you give them thought and you own them, then you're present. You're present in your life right then and there. Your feelings are actually with you. And you get to do that amazing, wonderful thing human beings can do, which is respond, choose, decide what you want to do, what path you're going to take. So that that's the big, big difference. Um, what what else did you just ask at the end that might have gotten... So now, I mean, you, you've got me convinced and it didn't take much because I already kind of felt this way, but I think you've clarified it, that we have these blocks, these roadblocks, as, as I kind of think of them. And they're roadblocks to my success because if they're hidden in my subconscious, they're most likely things that I deem flaws or uh, fears I have, which will prevent me from moving forward on bigger and better things. So I have them. And I know this is, I'd imagine the, this is kind of the things that you discuss with leaders and, and your book is The Conscious Leader. 
how do you bring them to the forefront? How do you recognize them when we're so good at hiding them from ourselves? Yes, and and I will point out that I directed the book toward leaders because I believe leaders have such powerful influence today. I mean, we are very, very um, engaged and uh, enamored of our leaders in business, in countries, etc., even in entertainment. So we have, they have great power to influence what people think and how people live. And I think Essentially, though, these principles that I write about, what, I'm, what we're talking about right now applies to all of us because all of us lead our own lives, don't we? We, we try to lead our lives and, and we have impact on our families and children and friends, etc. So it's important for us to get how to, to do this, how to make, as you say, you know, how do we get the unconscious to be conscious if I really want to do this and know myself? So it's about what I tell leaders, I would tell everyone which is that it's understanding who you are in a very real sense. You know, I asked people to tell me something. What, what is their actual history? Because they didn't just land in a cabbage patch. They come with history. We all come with something. What kind of family were you raised in? You know, are you the first person in your family to graduate college, maybe even high school? Um, or perhaps you come from a family of privilege and, and everybody there is super successful and you feel like you can't keep up. Or maybe you come from another country. Or maybe you were the ethnicity that was out in your environment. You were the odd person out. What What is it that makes you who you are? Because that tells you a lot about what you've pushed down or what you might be carrying. What do you carry? What you don't know about yourself can really hurt you because those will be your vulnerable points. You know, we have this wonderful chart that I think you've seen, probably everyone has seen. We've had it around since the 50s. Um, although I have to be careful in saying things like that because very often I say that to a group of millennials and they say, what are you talking about? <laughs> seen that. There's a chart called the Johari Window and it's a great way to just explain to people what we know about ourselves and what we don't. It's, it's about self-awareness. So across the top of it, it says, you know, there are four quadrants. And across the top two columns, it says known to self, not known to self. And down the side, it says known to others, not known to others. So the first square, if you think about it, is what's known to me and what's known to others. That's my public self. That's the stuff about me that I know and you know, we're all agreed upon. And that's like what politicians package. That's the piece they want you to know. Mm -hmm. And then the next box is the private self. That's the one that you're consciously keeping from view. The one politicians are really concerned about. Mm -hmm. You don't want anyone to know what's in there. But the top box on the right is the really tricky one. That's the blind spot. That stuff about me that I don't know, but you know. And that's a place of vulnerability for me and vulnerability not in a good way. It means that you know how to push my buttons. You know things about me that are not going to make me behave in the best light or something about me that's going to trip me up, my Achilles heel or something. And if I don't know what that is, I'm completely at your mercy. And it's interesting because we all have some of this. And unfortunately, the more powerful people get, uh, whether they're leaders or celebrities, the more people are hesitant to tell them those things. Right, right. Wow. You know, I, I've heard of the Jahari window, I think, in like college psych 101, I, but I couldn't have drawn it for you. So I'm glad you, you went through that. And it really brings some things out. Okay, let's go into this. So I understand the fear that what others know or what others can see that you can't see. I understand that fear in that they can use it against you if you want kind of like you said push your buttons right but, but what about the fact that you are kind of less aware of yourself than they are and so the judgments that they can pass that are actually true 
Um, like, I don't like that. I don't like the idea that others kind of know something. Maybe it's common knowledge and I just don't know it. So how do we find out and how do we do so in a way that isn't so brutal on our ego? Because I feel like I can't just <laughs> ask people that, but I want to know. Yes, of course. And that's the tough part. Now, people in companies, at least if they're run fairly well, have the opportunity to have feedback. And if people are honest with that feedback, they can find out some of these things. So if people have good managers who tell them things, or if there are very good 360s done, and that's not always the case, but if they are done well, you can find out a whole host of things that people think of you that you had no idea. And you can begin to look at what is it about me that's you know engaging in these behaviors? I didn't realize I intimidate people. I didn't realize that, you know, wow, people see me as an angry person. I've never <laughs> thought that I was an angry person. What what am I giving out? I don't like that my people are afraid of me. And you know, all of those kinds of things. Now, in daily life, what do you do if you don't really work for somebody else or you don't have opportunity to that? Yes, it is tricky. And I suggest to people that they ask a lot of questions of themselves. And I even put a, a questionnaire that I use for coaching in the back of my book so that anybody can use it. And it asks you to think about yourself, um, things that maybe you never sat and asked yourself certain questions. Do you know any of them off the top of your head? You don't have to give them all away, but I'm just wondering if you have a few that you love. You know, nothing too earth shattering, except that, as I say, people don't sit and think about it. Sure. So they don't think and sit about, you know, what what was my childhood like and were there any unusual experiences? I find so many times people just say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, we did move 12 times, but it was fine. And, yeah, I came from a war-torn country, but now I'm here. You know, just they they don't sit and allow themselves to feel what went with those experiences. So I asked them to think about that. I asked them to think about, you know, um, who's still living, who's not still living, what what kind of work do they do, what was the last time they've had their performance review, and what did people say about them? And do you think that people think you're a good listener? Do people feel they can connect with you? And how would you describe how satisfied you are with your job? Or I might ask, you know, things like, well, what's your favorite movie and favorite hero and that kind of thing? What hmm. What is somebody that is, you know, a role model in your life? Maybe someone you haven't met and various things like this about, I ask them questions about anger. Have you ever embarrassed yourself with anger? And to just get them to take a deep dive. The point is to take that deep dive. And if they have a good friend, can even be a spouse, but somebody who really will tell them the truth about themselves, who knows how to love them despite their flaws and will tell them the truth, then they should avail themselves of that person's feedback. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. What's up, everyone? I'm really excited for this. Let me introduce you to our new sponsor, Yertle. That's Y-E-R-D-L-E. -E. You might remember Yertle from last week's interview with Adam Warbach. They were so excited about the podcast, they decided to sponsor this week's episode. If you care about shopping with companies that are making the world better, you have to check out Yertle. Yertle is like a digital thrift store. It's a place to turn your items you don't need into items you do. Have you got something you haven't used in a while? A fellow Yertler can use it. You can post almost anything on Yertle, from household stuff to sporting equipment to toys. You can go on Yertle, post stuff you don't need that is in perfectly good condition, and get other people's stuff that they don't need. You save money and join a community of people who like to share, reuse, and buy less. And let's be honest, we all have way too much stuff. The best part is you're not spending money since you're exchanging Yertle dollars. All you pay for is shipping and a nominal service fee. So what are you waiting for? Get Yertling. Download the Yertle app right now or go online. It's easy to create an account. After you create your account, use promo code SMART to get an extra 25 Yertle dollars. Listen, this is basically free money. Go do it now. That's Yertle and promo code SMART 
Thanks, Yertle, for your support. Yertle, because swapping is better than spending. And now back to the episode. Man, I, I'm going through this. All right, so that brings some of this stuff to the forefront. I'm thinking about for leaders, and, and I look through the organizations you've worked with, many of them say in the financial industry. I read a, an amazing book called The Psychopath Test. And, <laughs> and have you ever heard of that book? I think I might have done. There were a bunch of books coming out a few years ago about um, – actually suggesting people become psychopaths in order to succeed. Exactly. And so the psychopath <laughs> test, what what I loved about it is it actually says that, you know, there are a number of psychopaths, not only in society, but many of them in leadership positions, because it now maybe not as true anymore, but you never know. But a couple of years ago, decade two, whatever, uh, it took that kind of leadership to get to the top. You know, it's manipulation, it's stepping on others, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's just the view I have of many executives in the financial industry. Now, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's my view. So what I want to ask is when you're dealing with these folks who aren't in high power uh, positions, they make a lot of money. How do you get them to talk mushy stuff like subconscious and how were you raised and and then <laughs> and then what do you hear? Because I just picture, you know, the Gordon Geckos or something like that who who are like, oh, you know, I don't I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about how I make people like me and blah blah blah. I don't know. Tell us about your experience there. Well, it's very interesting because um Look, people are people. There are psychopaths all over the place, some who just, you know, work in the corner stores. Right. So um, some are successful psychopaths and <laughs> some are not. That's all. Uh, in terms of the financial industry, over the years, certainly many people who were Machiavellian in their tactics and techniques would could and did rise to the top and give some bad press to that industry, but the industry by and large is made up of people. There's lots of wonderful, normal people in there too, who and some who are very successful as well. And there are psychopaths in all the industries mm-hmm. that you have out there because they, there's a certain number of them in, in our world. And we do unfortunately tend to reward and highlight their behaviors, which is never good because if there's a, a budding psychopath <laughs> they say "Ooh, let me mm. let me continue on my path but um i have certainly worked with people who were very difficult to work with because they were so defended against their real self and so didn't even know if they had a real self had a false self like we say in our business and didn't want to go down those paths but usually what happens, to be very honest, is I would often get called in because nothing else was working. Mm. So the board or some group would say, look, you know, we've got this very senior person, could be the CEO, could be somebody else who is a rainmaker, and we need help because this person is brilliant. This person makes us money, but they are offending every stakeholder, <laughs> every shareholder. I mean, we don't know what to do anymore. And so then you've got somebody who is really, you know, insulted, usually very narcissistic and saying, you know, well, why, why should I care? But they do care. They don't want to go out like this. And you really have to be very clear with them that you're not going to take um, the nonsense, that you're willing to see what else is there, but they've got to play the game with you. And it helps, I have to say, being a psychologist, having clinical talents to be able to hang in there with folks like that and be Mm -hmm. able to not take their nonsense and to push them to try to get to who the real person is. You know, and sometimes I I think of someone in particular, you know, really underneath this very big, fascinating, really, facade, the person was really quite damaged and, and never felt loved for himself from a very early age. So he really compensated by having this larger than life self that he thought would be, you know, worthy then of of love, and love became recognition and money to him. And in the coaching, he actually began to work very hard to understand how others saw him and was pretty horrified about how they did see him and how he made them feel. It took a long time, um, but he got to understand what good behavior was and 
how you couldn't say certain things to people, that that would never be right. Well, I couldn't change the, the structure of his personality at, at a late age like that, but he really became very conscious of what good behavior was, and he would try to mimic it and try to learn from it. And he he would... Uh, we worked on active listening with him so that he would learn to really listen to others because he didn't listen to anybody. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. <laughs> and tried to have real conversations. And he, he understands now that it's not all about me and that it has to have a lot of discipline in order, you know, to listen. Um, but, but he's, he's actually quite charming. I mean, he'll say to me, you know, um, I, I have to remind myself as we worked on, this is not something he could put on like, you know, oh, I'll put that suit on today. It had to be every morning. So his meditation every morning was about who he was, what his liabilities are as a person. And he has to remind himself that today I will listen. Today I will not hurt people's feelings. I will not lose my temper because I don't have the right to, even though I am the CEO. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. We had to keep him living in a place because he – he really wants to be something else. So, you know, you have to give people, even the most awful of them, the benefit of the doubt, try to bring them along. And then when they, when some of them can, I just say, you know, this person's done. They just yeah. don't want to change. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask. Do you ever run into, and I would imagine you do, but um, you ever run into people who think, look, I got to this position because of who I am. And so if I change that now... I might gain what you call, say, communication skills, but I'll lose my edge when it comes to competitiveness. Yeah, there are people that are very afraid, on, and at every level, people are afraid of changing what got them to a certain place. Right. You know, and, and that's what I, I call really the real Achilles heel, is the thing in life that gets us through our childhood, good, bad, or indifferent, the thing that makes us successful where we are today, is the thing that will hold us back if we don't change it. We all get to that place in life because our story becomes old, we became stuck, we become in a way seeing ourselves a certain way. We don't see that the world has changed and that there's a lot more in the world for us if we are open. But we can't be open if we're stuck in old ways of being. So it's a really important concept, even for people who, who don't kind of hit a wall. But most people who are successful, who are out dealing in the world, they, they hit a wall because of their Achilles heel. You know, it's, it's a common thing to... to certainly be asked to coach somebody because of a lack of self-awareness that the person has. But also quite common is that, oh, this person is terrific. This person is uh, great at execution. They know how to get a project done. They can build a team. They can happen. You know, it's great. And they get rewarded and rewarded and they climb all the way up. And they're senior leader and they're sitting in the C-suite and they're around the table with all the big people. And then all of a sudden, senior leadership team says, hmm, you know, this guy, he breaks a lot of glass and he's really just uh, not nice to people and he pushes his people and he doesn't get it that he's a bull in a china shop. And, <laughs> and if he's going to be in the C-suite, you got to change him. So now this guy's saying, well, wait a minute, that's how I got here. Exactly. So what do you want me to do now? And that is often a really challenging but in a way delightful assignment that I get because most of those people have just learned one way to be loved (laughs) be successful and now you open up a new possibility yes they're scared to let go absolutely but we work hard on helping them to see what's been left out of their lives because of this behavior it's very exciting, actually, that that's kind of a scenario and happens a lot. Yeah, I love that scenario. And I'm glad we kind of stumbled upon it because it's something that and I want to approach it from a slightly different angle, which is it seems almost typical or obvious that you have the scenario we just pointed out, which is somebody who's very hard charging type A uh, demanding. They get to the C-suite and they need to le- learn kind of people skills. However, what about the flip side, which I think I fall into, and I think many people do, which is, look, I'm I'm not the uh, I'm not a jerk. I actually don't really, um, and I don't want to say jerk, but I'm not demanding, or 
I'm okay. not blunt enough or whatever. I get my acceptance via, um, you know, being a people pleaser or entertaining or being that good friend or whatever it might be in, in the best way possible. And I actually find it difficult to do the hard things oftentimes, to say the hard things, to invite um, conflict, which is necessary. So have you ever run into that? And how would you approach that, deal with it? Yes. Well, now you're talking about something very, very important, which is conflict and how people feel about it and what's underlying conflict. Because there are a lot of very, very lovely people in the world who have great ability to lead and be good people and provide example, but they need to deal with what conflict means to them. And until they can do that, they can't have the sphere of influence that they want to have and get everything done that they want to get done. So it's like this. It's that people are afraid of conflict because they're afraid that somebody's going to get angry, either themselves and or somebody else. And so people, when you, you know, you do these talks and I say, how many people like conflict? And maybe two people raise their hand mm. and I say, yes, because if you like conflict, you're either a very angry person mm. who's got a lot of issues or you're a very creative person mm. because they're usually the only kinds of folks that enjoy conflict. And then, you know, everybody laughs and the two people look at me and I say, and I can tell, of course, you're very creative. creative sure. <laughs> and here we go, because creative people really learn that it's only through juxtaposing ideas that they can be creative and, and get to the new innovative thoughts. But for most folks, conflict makes them shrink and they say, oh, I don't want anybody to be mad at me. So we have to dig deeper. We have to go one layer, two layers, three layers down into that unconscious and say, Okay, so what does anger mean to you? Because that's really what you're afraid of. Let's do your anger quotient. Let's understand what happens to you when you think about somebody getting angry or you getting angry. And that's the trick. It's, it's conflict is not the problem. As I say, intellectual conflict leads to great creative ideas and inspiring discoveries. But it's people's reticence to engage in conflict because they don't know how to do it in a constructive, respectful manner without anger. That's the problem. Mm. So I spend a great deal of time helping people to separate what the conflict is. How can we talk about the differences that we have in this thought and this conversation without anybody getting angry? And that helps when we know ourselves part of that exercise of learning self-awareness is to be very aware of what it is that can make you angry. What are your anger buttons? What kind of household were you raised in? Did people get angry? Did they get violent? Did they scare you with their anger? Or were they passive aggressive? Was it sneaky? Was it, you know, at the expense of not being loved? What went on that taught you that anger is a bad thing? Because in truth, anger, most of the time, we see it as a very, very bad thing, and it's scary. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be. Anger by itself is information that something's wrong in my world. Something isn't sitting right with me. Now, I need to examine, is that real? Is it based on my past life? Or is somebody transgressing against me? Are they hurting me and my loved ones? And what do I do about it? I mean, if people didn't get angry, we'd never have civil rights for anybody. Right. You know, so anger helps us and motivates us in a good way when we are not destructive with it. So we have a lot to learn about anger. It's a huge topic, as you can see. And there are lots of ways I work with people who've come just because they've been referred because they're angry and their anger comes out all the time. Or people who come themselves and say, I don't want to be this person. I know I'm carrying a lot of rage. Help me. Help me to understand what to do. Mm-hmm. Because it, you know, it needs to be on one side, if you see a continuum, that on one side is passivity, the other is aggression. But right smack down the middle is assertion. And that's what we need to do when we're dealing with conflict. We need to be able to assert 
respectfully, honestly, what we think, what we feel, what our ideas are, and engage with someone else. And that person may not have taken their anger quotient that morning. Right. <laughs> and they may, may have trouble with you. But you can learn ways to deal with that and help actually that conversation so that we can get to resolution. If we can't do this as people in offices and people in relationships, how can we expect the Israelis and the Palestinians to do it. Exactly. How can we expect anybody else to get to this if we can't do it in these smaller situations? Hmm. So I think it's a very, very important thing that doesn't get enough attention. And, you know, it's a lot about what I said earlier about our pasts and our experiences with anger, how we have been taught, how we have, you know, experienced it and done it ourselves that keep us from engaging in this. And, you know, I tell people, I get it. The corner of two paths colliding is a very dangerous place to be sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. But you can get past that, and then something else opens up in your world. Huh. Yeah, you can use it. If you can use it properly, you can use it to your advantage. And yeah. I, I really like the, you know, assertion. It's it's a It sounds sounds like a beautiful place to live as long as you can manage that. And you know what's interesting is, again, the book is The Conscious Leader, Nine Principles and Practices to Create a Wide Awake and Productive Workplace. But all of the theory, or not even theory, but all of the application and the stories and the insight is much more psychologically based than your typical leadership book. And even when you think of the conversation we've had, you know, if you didn't know it was targeted, you know, specifically your book being targeted towards the workplace and leadership, you would think it's just, you know, it's, it's uh, personal growth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the point is that, you know, people have paid so much attention to other things in the workplace besides people. Right. You know, that old, <laughs> it's about the people, stupid. You right, know? right. Yeah. People corporations you know we had that thing in the election corporations are people no they're not they're made up of people yeah. and we have to know how people work yeah. we need to understand that we are psychological beings and we need to understand that psychology otherwise we're going into the workplace without you know an ops manual right and and that's important well and what i really like is what that brings to light and it goes back to what you mentioned about our infatuation with leadership is we often think of leaders as kind of something other than the average human. And I mean, maybe their brain works a little differently or maybe they work a little harder or maybe they do have some tendencies that have propelled them there. But when you get down to it, obviously we're all made of the same elements and molecules and all that. And so people don't always behave rationally. You can't expect them to, or you can't, uh, hold them to necessarily different standards than human standards, I think. It's a really good distinction, mm -hmm. in my mind, at mm -hmm. least. No, very good point you're making, because that's the problem with um, followership, in a way. We ex put these leaders on pedestals, and we don't forgive them their human frailties, and so then we disregard everything else they're trying to do. Some of the best, most famous leaders of all times have had great frailties, but they've usually been transparent and usually have tried to do the right thing. And that in some way or another, we were able to get that from them. Absolutely. And when we cling to, you know, their, their frailties, we are ignoring the fact that good leadership is always a work in progress. They're learning, they're growing, and that's what we should be doing too. Right. Well, Dr. Shelley, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, the book is The Conscious Leader, Nine Principles and Practices to Create a Wide Awake and Productive Workplace. And we will link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can also find it, I'm sure, on Amazon. Uh, I am sure because I, that's where I got it from. Um, but uh, I wanted to also ask, you know, is there... Uh, anywhere else do you you know do you write do you use social um, your website anywhere else we can find you and learn more yes and um, it, you know the full name dr. Shelley Resinello will be my LinkedIn 
um, presence, which I, I use LinkedIn a lot. Okay. Um, also, my website is uh, dot Um Website in process and progress, but it's up there. And um, certainly, uh, I'm happy and love to get comments, love to get feedback. I also write for the threetomatoes.com, which is a great site for, for women especially women of a certain age, and uh, has great following. So that would be fun to hear from you there, too. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Chris. It was very engaging. I think you have great questions, and you're a great counterpart. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Shelley Resinello. Her book, The Conscious Leader, Nine Principles and Practices to Create a Wide Awake and Productive Workplace can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. Please remember that if you do decide to purchase the book through Amazon to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Hope everybody enjoys their time with their family and friends this week. Stay tuned. We'll have more interviews coming up for you shortly, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks again to Yertle for sponsoring this week's podcast. Yertle is like a digital thrift store. It's a place to turn items you don't need into items you do. Have you got something you haven't used in a while? A fellow Yertler can certainly use it. You can post almost anything on Yertle, from household stuff to sporting equipment to toys. You can save money and join a community of people who like to share, reuse, and buy less. So what are you waiting for? Get Yertling. Download the Yertle app right now or go online. It's easy to create an account. Then use promo code SMART to get an extra 25 Yertle dollars. That's Yertle, and don't forget the promo code SMART. Thanks, Yertle, for your support. Yertle, because swapping is better than spending.